Many of us in this world find ourselves searching for ways to feel more alive. We move through our lives day after day, living through the same repetitive cycles and the same stressful patterns that often leave us feeling defeated, underappreciated, or unfulfilled. But what if there were a different way to perceive life? What if out there we were able to find the keys to a happy, healthy, and fulfilling reality in the lives that we're living right here, right now? For those of us who are looking for a way to transform our lives, for those of us who are looking to fully live in this moment, to change how we feel, how we perceive the world, and awaken to a better reality so we can fully live this life. This is the Live This Life Podcast. And I'm your host, Heath Cummings. I'm here to inspire you to ask yourself the question, are you living or are you killing time? What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode. Hope everybody is doing their best that they possibly can do through this self-quarantine time. Most of all, I hope you're able to do some things that you don't normally get to do in your day-to-day routines. I know for me, I've been using this time to meditate a lot more. My meditation practice was falling off quite a bit. Spending a lot more time with the family, obviously. And then one of the, I guess you could say, recreational things that I've been able to do a little bit more of is watch a lot of content on some things that really fascinate me. And that's my motivation for today's episode. I really want to dip our toes in the water of some of the subjects that I'm really, really fascinated in. In creating this podcast, I had a motivation to try and bring everyone some of the things that I discovered along my way from coming from a really tough and miserable way of existence to how I operate now on a day-to-day basis, how happy and fulfilled and motivated I am. And I feel like the more mainstream these interests become, the more creative and thought-provoking our reality becomes for people. In a, new, in a way, sort of people gain a new interest in life. You know, people can gain a whole new zest for life because of some of these things that we'll talk about today, the what-ifs. These things kind of add like a whole other layer to life that we never really saw before, before you kind of discover this stuff. You know, kind of like when I talked about the perceptions of, of the Monet paintings in one of my earlier episodes, what I've kind of coined that is like the, the Monet effect. I've heard it talked about in, in some YouTube videos and stuff where you can look at an array of Monet paintings that were done throughout his lifetime in chronological order. And you'd notice that in his later paintings, the colors became more abstract and that he did some paintings twice. He did he did two of them in completely different color schemes. Some that were very, very blue and purple and grays. They look kind of drab. Instead of the vibrant lifelike colors that he did in his earlier days. Well, this was due to the cataracts that he had, which caused his colors to appear more washed out in his later paintings. Or some of the paintings that he did, he did more than one version of them. He'd do a a scene in several different colors, like I said before, and it was done with one eye closed, and then he would close the other one because he had a surgery on his eye to remove cataracts. So it really messed up the color scheme. So he would do the painting as he perceived it. He didn't do it as people thought they wanted to to see the painting or they wanted to see the scene. He painted exactly how he saw it. And before learning that about Monet's paintings, you maybe just think he went through a certain stage where he liked to paint different colors or you thought maybe he got a little bit lazier or or whatever in his later years, he didn't care to put in much color and detail. But when you realize that that was really what he saw, it changes your perception 
on those paintings. So from now on, anytime you ever see those, it's going to you're going to know the reason why those paintings look the way that they do. And now that you know that fact, it's something you really can't unlearn. It goes for most of the things in life that you pick up along the way. You really can't unlearn certain things. Once you know how to ride a bike, you pretty much know how to ride it for life. I mean, you may not be as good at it as you were at one other point, but basically it's knowledge that sticks with you and your perception of Monet's paintings changes after you learn that fact. And the same goes with some of the theories that we're about to talk about, some of the things that involve the nature of what our, our reality might truly be. Once you gain some of the concepts, life gets a whole new level of interest and excitement. At least it has for me. Now, I've been holding off on this episode for a while because this topic is something that I dedicate a lot of my spare time to, especially lately that I've had a little bit more spare time. Um, I've been totally fascinated by it, which, which motivated me to finally get this episode out. In a way, I've almost been addicted to the study of quantum physics for quite a few years now. You know, quantum physics, quantum phenomena, uh, the study of cymatics, which that one's awesome. It's the study of how sound can affect physical matter. And we'll do a show on that one all by itself coming up soon. I mean, that one has some really fascinating information. I have a really good friend who um, does a lot of studies on cymatics, and I hope to have it on the podcast sometime soon. But the stuff I've been learning about is absolutely fascinating. But the problem is it moves at a very fast pace, and it's so rich in content that you often have to watch these things over and over and over again. And some of these studies, they're, you know, they're taught by PhD professors and everything, so they're a bit above what a lot of people can follow along with, even me, um, and, and I enjoy look, listening to this stuff. So I've spent a lot of my time trying to understand and break it down for myself, but then be able to explain it to someone else. You know, my poor wife has been the test subject for a lot of this stuff uh, for quite a while, and she's pretty smart, and, and she even has a hard time grasping some of this stuff, but she herself is really starting to come around and understand some of the concepts that we talk about when we chat about these things, and she's even getting interested in this stuff on her own as well. You know, really what opened up the door for this kind of stuff for me first was some of Joe Dispenza's work. You know, the concepts really opened up for me when I started to follow his stuff. And he talks a lot about how our perceptions change our reality through our, our thoughts and perceptions. And, and then I started to dig a little bit deeper because that's kind of what I do. I have a very inquisitive mind and I want to know all the facts about something. You know, I, I want to dig into the types of people he was referencing in some of his content. And I wanted to know more about these people. I wanted to know their, their veracity, their truthfulness, their, their, their basis of knowledge. I wanted to know everything about these people because if they're teaching something, you know, who are they to teach? You know, the same with me. I, I'm no expert on the matter. I am definitely not the authority on these types of things. And I'll reference a lot of different people who really are the experts that I've been listening to and, and doing research through. But I mean, if you're like me and you have an inquisitive mind too, you're drawn to podcasts like this, you're drawn to, con you're drawn to content like this. So I listened to Joe Dispenza's stuff and found some of his content on the network Gaia. And some of the stuff that's on there goes pretty deep with some world-renowned physicists and, and researchers that specialize in the study of the smallest possible parts of the universe around us. And now, like I said, I'm going to get, a, a, a not a little sciencey, but pretty sciencey, but stay with me because I really am trying to break this down in a way that, that gets your interest, but also gets you to walk away from this episode understanding some of these things because when you think about them, they're fascinating. And I promise I won't go too far off the rails or I won't go too deep. My goal is to take some of this stuff and break it down in a way that makes some sense. Because when you have a better understanding of how th this universe functions and your place in it, you have a better idea on how to function and navigate this reality 
as a result. When you do this, this is what's called a paradigm shift. And it's like what I talked about with Monet, except it's broader in the sense that your paradigm of reality changes. And one of my favorite quotes was by Thomas Kuhn, who was an American physicist and philosopher. He said, when paradigms change, the world changes with them. And that means so much. And I have it on my board right above my computer. And when I record the podcast, it reminds me every time that I do what I do on so many different fronts because I want to help shift the paradigm of the world, along with so many other transformative thought leaders that are emerging on the planet, some of the people that I have in my close circles. I feel like that we all have a similar mission, and I feel like we all have a similar mission, and, you know, let's be honest, we can't keep going the way that we've been going. You know, the the planet can't take it, the human race really can't take it, and I mean, to be perfectly honest, I think that we act in such primitive ways as, as a species sometimes compared to where we actually could be. And that we're just outside of this, this paradigm. You know, all these thought models are there and the things that we're, we're going to talk about today and, and some of the philosophies that are out there, they're right on the tips of our fingers. You know, they're just out of reach because of the way that we, we act, the, our normal paradigm right now. But just to think of the possibilities for the entire human race to thrive, you know, what could happen if we change the way we look at everything? And the only thing that's holding us back is our old paradigms. But the more we get people away from the thinking that brought us to the places we are right now in the world, enough people changing the way that they think, the way that they feel, the way that they operate, the way that they treat each other, the the world's going to shift with it. All right, so that's enough of that. Let's get it growing here and talk about the study of how the smallest parts of our universe is a very big deal. You know, we are so used to looking at our way of life in a very linear way. You know, the rules of cause and effect and all the old ways of looking at how reality works, you know, the studies of Isaac Newton all the way up to to Einsteiner, they were all very rigid and unbending. It was just a, a very specific and rigid way of looking at reality, which is called the Newtonian models. And, you know, general relativity and special relativity that, that Einstein was very famous for studying. But now the, the quantum model that's been gaining more and more understanding over the last century, it's very, very flexible and malleable, you know, and it's, it's a model of everything being connected and conscious, whereas the Newtonian model was very rigid and strict and compartmentalized. You know, it, it, was, it was unbending rules. Things couldn't change. They had to be a, an exact calculation, and that just guided everything. You know, Newtonian reductionism really took things and compartmentalized them. You know, it, it it didn't allow things to really flow together. Everything had to be its own strict mathematical equation, its own strict law. And quantum physics is really the opposite of that. It, it really is. It, it, it's more of a of everything is conscious and connected and operates within realms of each other. They are all contextual, meaning they, they operate in the language that's compatible with each other. You know, and that really is the place where our our 
world is heading. I mean, the, the age of quantum computers in the digital age where everything is connected, you know, everything is going quantum. So it seems like that's where our world is really moving. It seems like that's where our world is shifting right now. So why shouldn't we continue to shift everything in that direction? If quantum physics is built on the basic foundations of the general relativity thought models, and it seems to make more sense, and it's really the way that our world works. It seems like the natural evolution of things. The old Newtonian thought models, they're very linear and clock-like, and it really doesn't allow for much choice. It doesn't allow for much evolution. And there were a lot of gaps in general relativity and a lot of the thought models that came out of the, the Newtonian way of looking at things. And it seemed like it it promoted separation and it seemed like it promoted the sense of ego and everything else and it, it, it's the natural evolution of things at this point seems like we're just naturally moving away from that and into these other concepts and thought models the two models of looking at reality really do relate to each other but the quantum model is more relative to what's happening now it's more relative to what's coming out of the studies now and it's built on contextual information, which means it's, it's forming out of what we're actually seeing and what we're discovering with each new scientific advancement. As opposed to that, that model of everything being set and strict and that it can't change and that it's just going to be that way forever. And a lot of these old paradigms are held in place by a lot of older people who had these thought models. They don't want them to change. I mean, if you think about it, and I've seen this in, in several different areas of specialty, man, like I have a friend who was in archaeology. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who spend 20, 30, 40 years mastering a subject. And if you were an expert and a professor on general relativity and you had taught it to thousands of students, your ego maybe couldn't take the fact that you no longer stand on the forefront of scientific theory, of, of the theories of how reality works. You would want to preserve it too and not want it to change. But it's all part of evolution. And to understand and advance, we need to keep moving forward with our understanding. And it doesn't discredit the things that had come up behind us. I mean, that's like discrediting 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2 equals 8. Just because you know that 2 times 4 equals 8. You know, they're, they're models that were built on each other. But you one layer helps you understand the next. So, you know, general relativity was needed for us to understand where we are now. It doesn't invalidate it. It just means there's new ways of understanding. Just like addition was the basis to learning multiplication and even that can lead up to understanding like what two to the third power would be it's the same exact thing it's just it's it's the same result with a different understanding so today i want to talk about a couple of experiments and studies that really made me kind of lose myself in this research and I, again i urge you to look these up on your own because i am not formally trained on this stuff i'm just an enthusiast on it go get this information from the people who really really know it they dedicate their lives to it they study it nonstop and those are the people that you should really be learning this stuff from i'm more of just the signpost pointing you in a certain direction so one of the first ones i want to talk about was the theories of quantum entanglement which is one of the very first subjects that really fascinated me so an experiment took place that took a particle of light called a photon and split it. And, and a photon was basically just a, a, a small ball of light. It really is. It's, um, it's almost like a little miniature sun. It's just this small particle of light. And they took that photon and they split it. And even the fact that the light coming from the sun is more than just light, you know, those are all small particles as well. They, they wanted to study how that light behaves. Well, they took a photon of light in an experiment and they split it through a prism and basically made two 
identical particles from the one particle. The two identical particles of light came from the same original source. They, they were one particle and they were split, so they're basically an identical pair. They discovered that when these particles were separated, if one was affected, the other one reacted instantaneously. And the part that, that boggled their minds was that no matter how far apart you moved them, they still reacted to the stimulus. If one had a stimulus, the other one would react instantly. Now, no matter how far apart they were, this happened. And that baffled people. It even baffled Einstein. So if one particle was vibrated at a certain rate, the other would react instantaneously, even if it was huge, huge distances apart. And that would violate the laws of special relativity because it meant that this information was traveling faster than the speed of light. And that's supposed to be the ultimate speed limit, according to Einstein's laws. This, this entanglement of the particles or connection, this, this connection that formed somehow, somewhere, allowed information to travel instantaneously. And Einstein couldn't describe this or calculate it. It wasn't part of his, his formulas. And it, it baffled him so much, he even described it as, quote, spooky action at a distance. I mean, if you think about it, that's his scientific explanation for this experiment. When it was all said and done, he could not explain it. I mean, this is one of the most renowned scientists in human history, literally not being able to explain away these new models of discovery that we were coming across. Even these major scientists of the day were admitting that their models were incomplete. They had the EPR paradox, which stood for the Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen paradox, which was an incomplete model of general relativity because their equations and their theories and concepts didn't paint a complete picture. It left a lot of holes. And their paradox couldn't explain away some of these things. I mean, it, it, the way that he described it, spooky action, you know, it's, it almost sounds like it's like, you know, something spooky, magic, you know, esoteric, whatever. If you, if you went to an island, like a remote island right now, and interacted with an island tribe who had never seen anyone from the modern world, and you showed them an iPhone, they would probably call you a lit a witch or, or say it was magic. And if you look at our history, we have a tendency to call things magic or mystical, mysterious things that we don't understand, sciences that we don't understand as something that's considered magic. You know, it's, it's almost the same type of misinterpretation here. He literally tried to explain it because his models of special relativity wouldn't let him do it. So he just tried to explain it away as something spooky. This entanglement is thought to affect everything in the known physical universe, since everything in existence is hypothesized to have been connected in one infinitely dense point. And, and when things exploded after the Big Bang, all of that physically connected matter spread out all over the place. And everything was split, like the photons that were split. You know, they were, they were entangled as well, and they reacted when each other were affected. So the theory of quantum entanglement says that at the basic smallest portions of our physical reality, things are entangled. So the theory is that you yourself are connected to everything everywhere. So when you think about that, when you go back into to spirituality and, and religious philosophy, they say, you know, you are connected to the source, you are connected to the universe, God, whatever you want to call it. This is a scientific explanation to that. You know, I just did an episode recently on maintaining a high vibe, high vibration, uh, you know, raising your vibe, keeping it up there, you know, and as hippie as woo-woo as that might sound, it, it's a real thing. Your thoughts and brain waves are all measured in vibrations or frequencies, which are measured in cycles per second, often hertz. 
So keep that in mind for a minute when you think about how you might be entangled to everything in your existence. You get into theories about how we attract things with our vibe and all the laws of attraction. And with the law of attraction, if you're not familiar with it, it's something that says you attract what you match internally. That like attracts like. Now, the law of attraction has become such you know, a catchphrase. It's become such a huge thing. There's been movies made about it, The Secret, a lot of public speakers and self-help people. They write books on it. They hold seminars and all that kind of stuff. The problem with a lot of that information that's out there is I find often that it's misguided, often to sell you something, sell you that book, sell you that seminar on how to manipulate that law of attraction. And some of those types of people, they really make it so whimsical. You know, they, they make people believe that if you just think about something enough, it's going to come to you. And really, that's misguided. You know, you don't just get what you think about. You don't just get what you wish for if you just wish hard enough. You get what your dominant vibration is. You get back to you what you put out there. You know, I've really come to think of the whole law of attraction thing as a law of karma, that you, you get back what you put out. And the reason that this law of attraction is, is viable or that it makes sense is this theory of not only entanglement, but it also goes hand in hand with the principles of the, the 12 universal laws. And several, we'll go deeper into that and into another whole episode because this one's going to be deep enough. Uh, but several of those laws we've already discussed in the past few minutes. The law of oneness, which it, everything is connected, which would be the, uh, the theories of entanglement. The law of attraction, which we just kind of described, that like attracts like. And the law of, of vibration, which says that everything moves, everything vibrates at its smallest basical, basic fundamental particles. And that law of vibration really gets solidified when you look at what they're doing with the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland. And the information that that's coming out with, it, you know, so much of it is so fascinating. They have found substances of matter smaller than we can really even comprehend uh, you know, it's kind of like trying to ponder how big the universe is. And recently they came up with the smallest measurable length that they possibly think that they can come up with. And it's called the Planck length, which is named after Max Planck, his, his uh, famous Nobel Prize winning theoretical physicist. And this size is so small. The best way that I've heard it described was if, if you look at a grain of sand, you have sand and the next one smaller than that is silt. And the next one smaller than that is clay. It's really one of the, the, the smallest things that we can, can observe with the human eye. Clay is the smallest. So if you took a grain of clay and you blew it up to the size of the universe around us right now, you made it that big, the Planck length in comparison to that massive grain of clay would be the size of a grain of clay. If you think about that, it's mind-boggling. And down at that Planck length, they've discovered that the only thing that really exists down there is what they've called quantum foam. And it's basically like an undulating mix of fields. Things just come in and out of existence constantly. The fields that make up other larger particles, they go all the way up into quarks and bosons and all that kind of stuff. These fields make those particles. And down at the Planck length, it's just this this foam that just keeps going in and out of existence. It's the stuff that uh, these particles are made of but it's all vibration. But all these things are made up of, of fields and vibrations. Now, if the law of attraction says that like attracts like, and all of these things at the basic smallest fundamental parts of the universe are vibratory fields, I mean, 
an atom is like 99.999% empty space except for a couple of different particles. Now, if the law of vibration says that everything vibrates at a certain frequency, think about what that means to that law of attraction that people put out there, those theories, that you attract to you what you are. The like attracts like. So does that affect things down at the basic, smallest, fundamental portions of our universe? Is that the secret to the law of attraction? The people who say they, they know the secret to movies like The Secret say that it's not the, the feeling of wanting something because that's acknowledging that it's not there, which attracts exactly that, more lack of what's not there. They say the way to bring the things to you is you need to believe it. Believing is key. You need to believe it before you see it. It's all such fascinating stuff. And, you know, like I said before, I'm really going to get into the, the entire list of the 12 universal laws and we'll go summarize them at some point. But all this stuff I'm talking about relates to these laws. And when you understand these and you relate to them and operate with them, you get a better understanding of the power you possess if they're used properly. This doesn't involve crystal balls or chanting or any of the new age type things. You know, there's, there, there are some very successful people in this world who know this kind of stuff that talk about these kinds of things and how they discovered them and how their lives changed after they applied them. I mean, once I learned these things, once I learned these concepts myself and I applied them to my life, it's only been a couple of years, but I've talked about it many times in this podcast. It's after I discovered this stuff and changed how I operate, how I talk about myself, the things I believe in, everything in my life has changed. So let me go quickly into another section about how our observations create our reality. We have to talk about one of the coolest and most fascinating, but seriously, simply confusing things about the research I've done on quantum physics. And that's the dual slit experiment. And it's, it's one that has been revisited over and over and over again over the last century or more. And it's just gotten more and more mysterious the more they look into it. So to understand this experiment, we have to understand what they were trying to find out. So they started out with trying to figure out if light was a wave or a particle. If it was, you know, a wave of light or if it was a small little ball of information. And they knew what photons and electrons were, you know, different examples of light. But they wanted to see how it actually behaved when it was under controlled circumstances. So they set up this experiment. So, so to picture this experiment, picture a big wall in front of you, like a 10-foot high, 30-foot long wall. And it has a single doorway in it. They took a device and they fired light at this wall. And on the back side of that wall was another one that was solid. So the light from this source went through the first door and it shined, you know, a rectangular picture of light on that back wall. So then they did the experiment with a second door next to the first door and still a solid wall behind it. So now they fire the light at these, these dual slits. And instead of just seeing two bands of light, like they thought they were going to see, they see a series of zebra-like stripes on this back wall with the most bright bands of light shining on the back wall directly in line with the two doorways. And as they went outward from the center of that back wall, that solid wall, the, the bands got a little bit lighter. And, and basically there was a band of light and then nothing and then a little bit dimmer of a band of light and then nothing and then a little bit dimmer of a band of light from the center all the way outward on both sides. So they determined that the light going through the two doorways was interfering with each other and was creating this interference pattern. 
basically it was behaving like a wave. The, the light went through the doorways in this one big wave. And the one big wave broke up on that first wall, except for some of that wave energy went through the two doorways. And when it went through those two doorways, two smaller waves both started to emanate from those doorways heading for that other wall. And those two little waves started to interact with each other. So the high points of the waves are what met up on that back wall, and that's what made the brighter bands. And then the low points of the waves made the dark spots. And then basically the the high points and the low points kind of made like a mid midway. They kind of cancel each other out. So this basically led them to believe that light behaved like a wave. So they shined the light through the doorways. It behaved this way, and they said, okay, light performs as a wave. So then they got a little bit more sophisticated in future experiments. So they were able to get sophisticated enough to fire single photons, single particles of light at these doorways. So they did the first experiment and they fired it to the single doorway and they got a band of you know little dots all over the place that were in the shape of the doorway on the solid wall behind it. So then they go and run the experiment again and they fired single photons at the two doorways. And they did it for a long period of time and they started to get an interference pattern, which completely baffled them because they're like, okay, well, if we fired the light in a big source like a wave, yes, we can see we, why we would get an interference pattern. But why if we fire the, the photons one at a time, are they creating an interference pattern? It should just be making two slits of light. So this completely baffled them. They thought that maybe the, the photons were splitting themselves before they went through the doorways and then reconvening on the back side of the doorways, and that was creating the interference pattern. So then they had to get a little bit more sophisticated. They, they got some measuring devices that went down to this very small level, and they tried to monitor which doorway these photons were going through. So they actually put a monitoring device, a, a source of, of actual consciousness monitoring, because somebody was monitoring this thing, and they did the experiment again. And after about an hour of firing the single photons, they only got two bands on the back wall. So the act of just putting the measuring device on one of the doors made the photons behave as particles. So remember, in the first experiment, they interfered with each other. And the only thing that changed was they put a measuring device to watch which doorway it was going to go through. So they treated the photons, the, the particles of light, like a particle. And they got particle results. But when they focused it looking for wave-like results, they got the waves. So just the simple fact of creating an observer changed everything. And that's what brought about some of the, the major theories on what this meant for our understanding our reality. And it kind of created a whole lot more questions than it actually answered for anybody. Because now you have a substance or matter that's behaving as both a wave and a particle, depending on what the observer is trying to observe. And the scientists knew that if an object was a wave, it was a wave. But if it was a particle... It was a particle. It could not be both at the same time. But this experiment showed them that it was possible. And I guess the most fascinating part about the entire experiment was that the conscious observer itself was the only change that was made. And that act of consciously observing the experiment with a measuring device changed the complete outcome. Consciousness changed the way that matter performed. What they determined in the years since this experiment, and I believe it was done in the late 1800s originally, that the particle existed in a sea of possibilities. It, ex it's, it existed in a, in a quantum state, a sea of potential outcomes. It was basically all outcomes at the same time. 
And if they collapsed those potential outcomes into one specific result, when they focus their consciousness towards observing one specific result, that's what they got. And what they're discovering out of all this is that the universe is complementary. You know, these things have a dual nature that these these particles can exist in particle and waveform, that they exist in this quantum state of potentials until you actually consciously observe them. And this goes along with not only particle physics, but in other theories as well. I mean, they say that, you know, you have the wave particle duality and you can't uh, be one or the other in one exact moment. If you want to measure something, you've got to do it as a particle or a wave. And you have to measure something's position and momentum in a similar fashion. That to measure something's momentum, you cannot know its position. And if you want to know its exact position, you cannot measure its momentum at the same time. And a same similar dualistic nature goes along with time and energy. And that's something they're still really studying. And they figure that maybe the theory is, is if they figure out the dual nature of measuring energy and time, that can lead to a whole lot of breakthroughs uh, in, in so many different realms. It's all so fascinating. But the most fascinating part is that once we measure something, we take one of those other potential possibilities out. And like I said before, the original thought models were very rigid, but without Newtonian reductionism and all that kind of stuff that existed before, we wouldn't have that glaring contrast that we have when we compare quantum physics to it. We wouldn't really know the difference between the two. We had to learn that first one to appreciate the second. You know, we really had to have that contrast of these two models that are seemingly different to understand where either one was coming from. And now quantum physics is making making so much more sense when you look at not only the basis, but the difference between the two models. And now it's kind of like if we now understand the position of either one of those thought models, it's almost like we, now we can start to understand the momentum and almost start gaining more and more momentum. It's a very exciting time. So when you think about how absolutely fascinating all of those facts are, that consciousness has been substantiated to affect how matter and particles down at the most small microscopic minute particles that make up the foundations of our universe, that they react with consciousness, it makes you wonder more about what our consciousness can actually do. Can our consciousness actually attract what we match our observations to? The whole believe it to see it rather than seeing is believing. You know, quantum physics says that things are conscious and contextual and complementary. And when you look at this experiment, the contextual observation, the, the act of observing affected the outcome, meaning we gave something meaning by observing it. And how many things in life happen that way? If you give your attention to something, how much more do you end up seeing that thing? Have you ever gone to go and buy a car and you get your heart set on it and all of a sudden you see them everywhere? It's not that they just showed up. Now they're already there. You know, these are smaller examples, but it's been a huge catchphrase recently, the whole believe it to see it thing. But, it, you know, it, it is a bit of a whimsical concept, but it brings it to a whole other level of understanding when you think about it in context with these experiments. 
when you listen to stories of some of the mega successful people out there, you know, like the one that, that comes to mind the most is the one of Jim Carrey, who he wrote himself a $10 million check when he was just a struggling comedian. He didn't have anything to his name and he had a specific date on it. And he completely believed that he was going to get that money by the date he put on the check. And he wrote the check for, quote, acting services rendered. And when that date came around, he had 10 years later been able to actually cash that check. You know, there are countless stories about how people can create their reality by believing in it. You know, I've done it myself. I've, I've manifested certain things into my life before I knew any of this stuff. And when I look back on it, I can see that I completely believed in what I was going to accomplish and the things that I, I wanted to accomplish. And I got there, but, you know, really ever since I've embodied the mindsets and, and some of these concepts and adopted some of these things, I've really completely shifted things in a much more purposeful way and been more mindful of what I say and how I, I look at things and how optimistic or pessimistic I am. So when you understand how the universe might work, again, these are theories, you know, your, your place in the universe kind of changes, you know, and the potential power that you might possess all becomes a huge potential. You know, if anything, with this information, hopefully it makes you stop and think about the ramifications of every thought and action that you take. If in like that experiment, they focused on an outcome and that outcome manifested, what are you choosing for an outcome to focus on in your life? It really is a lot to ponder. And like I said before, I don't I don't have any specific videos to recommend, but look some of this stuff up. Um, if you don't have a membership to Gaia, you can definitely go on YouTube and, and search for some of these things. Search for the dual slit experiment and, and try and find ones that don't bore you to tears of, of some examples. But some of these things really are fascinating, and uh, these experiments are even going on to this day. Trying to understand what it is they're actually seeing and how this stuff works. So I know it's a lot of information. It's, uh, you know, it might be the first time some of you have heard this stuff. Maybe it's, you know, revisiting some stuff that uh, you've already known about. But I think if anything, I'll end this one there. That's a lot of info already. Um, and I think it's a lot of food for thought to chew on for quite a while. And hopefully I didn't lose anybody. But hopefully I gave you a lot of tidbits of info to look up some of this stuff. That's been the whole focus of this podcast, to sort of be the signpost for certain things. Like, law of attraction is this way, and manifestations that way, and creating your own reality is this way, and positive living is that way. You know, I'm definitely not the authority on any of these things. I'm still a, a student of all of this stuff. And I love the saying that we best teach what we need to learn ourselves. And I can only point you in the possible directions that you can, you can go. And in turn, my hope is that people get to end up with the same perspectives on life, the same sea of potentials that your life could turn into. And that's why I've always said, focus on where you want your life to go rather than where it seems like it might be going. Because if you focus on where it might be going and you're not happy with that, but that's your main focus, that's what you're bringing to yourself. But if you change your focus, if you look in a different direction, that might be the direction that it starts to head into. So that's enough for this one. I'm going to leave you with a song. This one, I don't think I've played before. If I've played it before, I'm playing it again. This one, this one's by Soul Rising. This is off the 2019 album Dreamer, and it's called Echoes. Until next time, keep living, go create your own reality. 
whatever it is. Hope it's a good one. See you next time.